Well, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 now, and as you know, we've been in, in the second part of the book now where Paul's been responding to the questions and concerns that the Corinthians have brought to his attention through the letter that they wrote to him, and he dealt with the uh, idea of marriage and how, what, what's marriage like in the kingdom of God, and he basically said, stay the way you are, and whatever you need to do, fine, but everything should be about the kingdom of God. It's not about marriage or not marriage. It's about the kingdom of God. So if you're married, your marriage should be about the kingdom of God. If you're not married, make your life about the kingdom of God. But it's all about the kingdom of God. It's not about marriage. And then he also talked about the uh, meat sacrificed to idols, the pagan worship food. You, you remember that. And, and again, he said you have freedom to engage in other activities. But don't use your freedom for self-indulgence. Use your freedom for the sake of the kingdom of God. And whatever it means to help further the kingdom of God, use your freedom in those ways. And then he said he used his own life as an example. You remember this, where he was talking about his own authority, his apostolic authority. They were questioning his apostolic authority. And he gave his own life as an example of how to give up your freedoms, your rights, in order to serve the kingdom of God. He had rights to do things as an apostle, and he chose not to engage those rights. He chose not to be paid by them. He chose not to get married. He chose a number of things in order to actually help them out. And that was one of his examples about letting go of your own personal stuff in order to further the kingdom of God. And so that kind of brings us up to speed, and we start to engage chapter 11. Now, Paul begins on a whole other tack. A, a, a whole other thing that he's responding to with them. And now this is about actually how people conduct themselves in church. That's what it's about at this point. And there's three main thrusts of that. One, the first one, which we'll deal with today, has to do with how they appear, particularly men and women, and what's on their head, which is, is okay, one topic we're dealing with today. In this service, many of you will probably have a little more acquaintance with what that's about than uh, will in the second service. Uh, but the second part is this. The second thing he'll deal with is communion, the Lord's Supper, um, love feast. We're going to be taking a break in, uh, from the Corinthian series for the next three weeks because next week we're doing something different. We're, uh, Josh and I are going to be doing some tag team stuff on a different topic next week. The next two weeks after that are rally days. We have a double back-to-back -back rally day um, that we've been doing now, which has kind of turned into Vision Sundays for us here and that type of thing. And then after that, we'll re-engage. When we re-engage, we'll be dealing with the love feast, which I, ironically, that, that week we're actually having love feast um, here, so it'll, it'll work out well. Um, as far as where we're at in Corinthians and what's happening here. And so then the third topic that he deals with regarding uh, the behavior in the church has to do with spiritual gifts. And uh, we'll spend a little bit of time in that. And actually by that time, we're actually also going to uh, have a, a, a Sunday school class about spiritual gifts kicking off at that point to help people kind of discern uh, spiritual gifts and understand what their gifts are and how to use them and that type of thing. So that's what's going on. We find ourselves in chapter 11 right now, the beginning of that time of Paul interacting with the church in Corinth about how they uh, interact in church and particularly in this text about what they wear on their heads or don't wear on their heads. And it has to do with gender in, in this, role, in this uh, text. So as we engage in that, I just want to say that this passage is one that has had a great deal of controversy around it, okay? This is one, one of the biggest controversial passages in recent history in Scripture. Why? Well, because it deals with gender and the role uh, in roles in, of men and women in the church. 
And because of that, obviously, there, there's all sorts of reasons to ask questions, particularly in this day and age when women have come so far in gaining equal rights in our society. And I think most of us can probably jump up and down for joy about that and say it's a great thing, you know? And it's awesome that, that, people, uh, that women have, have grown in, in uh, equal rights in our society. We know that that is not always fully complete and that there's still struggle and there's still discrimination and there's certainly still objectification of women and that type of thing. But we've come a long way in our society on this level. Because of that, Anytime there's a major shift in society, in the way social interactions happen, or in the way scientific discoveries go down, or the way technology advances, anytime that something like that happens, it causes us to stop and to look at the way we've interpreted certain passages of Scripture because we start to feel a tension. And the tension that we often feel is that society is starting to think and feel and view things a certain way, but church tradition may have viewed, viewed things a different way, and now the texts that we have used to support that church tradition come into question because society forces it. We start to feel uncomfortable with the traditions that we've held to and the interpretations we've held to because now society's kind of pressing that on us, you know? And there's, there, that can go in a good direction, where we're refined, where we grow deeper, and it may result in us having a better handle on what it is that we've always believed, but now we know why. Or it may result in us gaining a new understanding and different perspective about things that we hadn't seen before in the way we interpret Scripture. And that shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't bring us fear. You know, the fact that uh, Einstein discovered that E equals MC squared or, you know, whatever great scientific discovery there is, that it doesn't mean that the the people before were slacking. We always build on the shoulders of those before us. And when it comes to interpretation of Scripture, we're still learning. We're all still learning how to interpret the Scripture, and the church continues to grow in its understanding of how to interpret the Scripture. For instance, you know that it used to be a big problem, right, if you believed that the world was round, because Isaiah talks about the four corners of the earth, and you could get yourself in some real big trouble with the church if you believed that the earth was round, because that means you didn't believe in the authority of Scripture, until all of a sudden definitive proof came out that the world was actually round, that like if you sail that way, you end up coming from that way, and there's only so much you can do. I mean, you got to admit at some point, well, we have to go back and look at the text and see what the text actually says. And at that point, they realized that Isaiah, the same book that says the four corners of the earth, also talks about the circle of the earth. And you start realizing, ah, we never saw that one before, you know? And it took the exterior pressure for us to begin to understand that the Bible was a little bit bigger than what we had been seeing, you know? And any time that there's a contemporary issue in the scriptures that causes tension, our job is not to freak out and get scared and, and to try to protect everything we've thought before. Our job is also not to morph and make the scripture fit into whatever culture's thinking at the time. Heaven forbid, that'd be a bad idea. What we're supposed to do is take the pressure and to dig deep and to say, so what do the scriptures actually say about this? Now I have to wrestle with this new stuff that's happening in society and I have to go and relook at those texts of scripture. And that's really important. And one of the things that can be dangerous is when we form camps, theological camps, around 
over here is the person who believe, the people who believe this way, and over here are the people who believe this way. And what we're afraid of is being in this camp or in this camp of theological interpretation instead of just trying to understand what the scriptures actually say. You know, because it's kind of like if if you're too too heavy into one political party or another political party, it might be hard to figure out what's best for the country. You know, uh, not to talk politics. Just actually forget I said anything about that. Okay, that'll be distracting. But you understand that if we get hung up on camps and parties and, and, and groups, that we can miss the freedom to actually see things more objectively because we're afraid about being pinned into one camp or into another. This happens in interpretation of Scripture. There are terms thrown around like, I'm a strict literalist in, interpre- in, in interpretation of Scripture. And, or, or, you know, I kind of see a lot of allegory in the Scripture. I'm a, I'm a liberal uh, in- interpreter of Scripture. But those are really misnomers. Anyone who says they're a strict literalist in the interpretation of Scripture, I might ask him why they still have a right eye and a right hand because Jesus told you to pluck it out and cut it off. You know, and why haven't you yet? Because I guarantee you that you're not sinless. You know, and so we, we understand that all through the Scriptures, you don't take Solomon's Proverbs the same way that you take the Ten Commandments. You know, there's different figures of speech. There's different ways of writing. We not only are trying to literally understand what the Bible's talking about, we're using literary minds to understand how the person's talking and what's being said and what kind of language is this and and what's underneath of that and what's the whole point. And, you know, we don't have to take every little piece of the parable that Jesus talked about and and try to prove all sorts of scientific things from it. He's telling a story to give it. You understand what I'm saying? right? And so none of us are completely strictly literal, you know, because otherwise this passage that we're about to talk about today, it says that the head of every man is Christ. Now listen, we all know what goes on inside of men's heads. It ain't Jesus, you know what I mean? And so like literally Jesus isn't the thing on top of my shoulders. Obviously, there's metaphor in there. And so when we understand that, we all have to say that it's not just black and white that I'm a strict literalist or I'm not. This is, we are all in the sea of interpretation. And it's not an easy thing. But the good news is, is that God gives us tools by which to understand that stuff, okay? And we have to learn to use those tools. Jen and I and the boys went to a church back in, uh, probably in, in June, I guess it was, where a buddy of mine uh, who's connected to us uh, in that leadership network, Netzer, that we're a part of, he, he was leaving his church and, and taking a church out in Ohio, and they were in transition, and so I was out there teaching to kind of provide some perspective in the middle of that, and we were out there that morning, and it was, it was before I got up to teach, uh, my friend had a baby dedication, and the the this church, is a, it was a formal sanctuary. It was a new sanctuary, a modern but formal, nice sanctuary. And uh, it had pews, and, and it was kind of a lot more formal than I would say what our, uh, our family's really used to or whatever. Well, the, the family comes up, and they're, they, they're all decked out, and they have this, this little girl's in this beautiful white gown, um, and uh, she's about to be dedicated. And my friend's going through kind of the, the liturgy, the ceremony there of of the uh, baby dedication, talking about this child being given to the Lord and that type of thing. And Colton, I'm sitting up front with, with, uh, behind my friend, and I see, and Colton, he starts crawling on the pew, you know, our youngest, and he crawls over to where his mom is. And he looks up with these big bug eyes, and he looks up at her, and he's like, is this a sacrifice? 
The poor guy, right? Like, wow, this is pretty traumatic. He thought it was a sacrifice. I don't know where he came up with that idea. You know, I don't think he's ever seen a sacrifice before. Um, but, but it's funny how, like, all the situation and everything that's going around, from his perspective, you add it all up. And it's like, this is what it looked like. Giving the kid to the Lord, it's dressed in this nice gown, we're in this religious thing, there's an altar, you know, like, and it kind of looks like that's what it is, you know, and you, you add the math up a certain way, and it really starts to look like that, and oftentimes, you know, that's like, you can imagine if someone came from an ancient culture and walked into that moment, they might actually think that's what was going on. In the same way, we, in a future culture, looking back 2,000 years into a text, it's really easy for us to make assumptions about what that text is saying, and we might be completely and totally culturally clueless about what is being said in that text. And it's important for us to have some humility and to understand that what seems like a no-brainer to us in reading the text isn't always a no-brainer because we don't live in that world. And it's important for us to take our time and to use the tools of interpretation that God gives us to understand what it is that he's saying. And the tools that he gives us is he gives us the full counsel of Scripture. We don't have just 1 Corinthians 11. We have the entire book of 1 Corinthians. We don't just have the entire book of 1 Corinthians. We have all of Paul's letters to all the churches. What's more is we have all the sacred writings. We have the full canon of Scripture. And it helps us give perspective to each part of it. Okay, we also have the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So behind the word is a person. Behind the sword is a spirit. And that spirit, that person indwells in us. It's like if you watch the director's cut of a film where the director is sitting there telling you what they were doing when they were creating the film. The Holy Spirit is inside of me telling me and interpreting what this is about. None of us have the corner on the market on the Holy Spirit and we can't fully and clearly always understand exactly what he's saying, which is why there's a third tool called the community. Okay, and so we are given the full counsel of scripture, we are given the Holy Spirit, and then we are given the community. And in the community, we're all trying to hear from the full counsel of scripture and from the Holy Spirit, and our job is to interact with each other. Part of what the the church is supposed to do is to communicate to each other what we're learning in the scripture. This is a huge part of what we're supposed to do. That's what Bible studies are about, but that's also what personal devotions are about. When we share with each other what we're learning in the word, it's also why God gifts certain people to teach the scriptures, to provide perspective. It's also why some people are extremely gifted and give us what we call commentaries and Bible study tools to really help provide perspective. And it's important to engage all of those things when going after a text like the one that we're dealing with today. Now, this is a pretty intense uh, set of thoughts on this one. And normally, you know, you get an exhortation and preaching from me on a Sunday morning. This is much more of a teaching and an exegetical explanation around the text because I want to be careful to deal with it appropriately to give you perspective on the angle that we hold to. The elders have spent uh, probably, what what do you say, Dave, three, four months um, picking apart this topic, knowing that this Sunday was coming. And so one of the things that kept us from getting to other things on the agenda is that we actually spent a lot of time investing into this because we wanted to be on the same page before I preached this sermon. 
Uh, we actually have a paper that we've written that gives more perspective on that. You're welcome to gra grab that from one of us. You're welcome to talk to the elders at some point if you have any more thoughts or concerns about this. We also have papers this morning that have an outline a little bit of this message. If you want to take notes, um, Don was handing out the, that uh, the sermon note page. If you want one but you don't have one, you can raise your hand now. Daryl's in the back with more of them. He can give them to you right here, Daryl, right there. Got a few more people who actually want this. This is for the rest of our time. It just has a place to kind of take some notes there and provide perspective for the rest of our time. Up here, too. If you don't have a pen, there's also, I think Dave there's, has some pens. If anybody needs a pen, raise your hand, too. Dave can get you a pen over here. We don't normally do it like this, but this is different than uh, a normal Sunday. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. There's 16 verses. It's a short text compared to what we've been tackling, so I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word, please. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now... I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And may God honor the reading of his word. You can have a seat. Join me in prayer, please. God, you give us the full counsel of scripture. You give us the community. And you also bless us with your Holy Spirit to give us the director's cut of the, uh, the editor's version of the word of God here. And we're asking, especially that this morning, you would give us your Holy Spirit to help interpret this text. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, I want to technically deal with this for a second. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time just technically. This isn't a Bible study today, but I do want you to understand the framing of the discussion that has taken place over the last many decades around this topic, okay? And that is, has been there are scholars. There is volumes and volumes 
written about these 16 verses, okay? And so uh, what we can do is provide just very brief perspective on some of the textual issues that influence this conversation, okay? And uh, the the first thing that I want to mention is that anywhere where it says man and woman in this text, some translations have that as man and woman, some have it as husbands and wives. It's a major difference in the discussion, okay? The word can be translated either way and is translated both ways in the scriptures in many different translations. There's no difference in the word, okay? And so one translator chooses to translate it into our language as husbands and wives. Another translator chooses to translate it as men and women. Why is that a big deal? Well, because it's a big deal about whether this is talking about gender in general or whether this is talking about the function in a home and how that manifests at church, okay? So whether or not Paul is asking wives to do something a certain way or whether he's asking women to do something a certain way, one makes it a function of a family relationship. The other just makes it about gender, okay? You understand? That's a big difference. That's just a textual note. I'm going to give you a couple couple more things that are textual notes like that. The word head in here, it says that not just, there's, there's two uses of the word head. One of them is literal, right? That says there's supposed to be something on a, a woman's head. And then there's also the metaphor that the head of every man is Jesus. The head of every uh, woman is the man. And like we said, obviously that's metaphor. We know that Jesus isn't sitting on top of my shoulders right now. Um, and so there's obviously metaphor going on in that. That word, when used as a metaphor in Greek culture, has very, very little connotation, if ever, of actually indicating authority, which is interesting. We use that in contemporary culture to signify authority primarily. That's what we think of head as, as authority. And the only reason we think of that is because of the Scripture, like Christ is the head of His church, right? However, apparently... Most commentators, it looks like, fully agree that the word head also and primarily means this, source. So it's the source of where we come from, okay? Which makes sense because you hear him saying that man didn't come from woman, but woman came from man. And then he also says that the head of Christ is God, which is a weird thing, isn't it? To say that the head of Christ is God, it's weird whether you think it's authority or whether you think it's origin. Because Jesus has no origin, does he? I mean, he's the eternal son past, but he does on earth. He wasn't actually Messiah, Christ, Jesus, until the incarnation of which God was the one who gave birth to him, not Joseph, right? He was the one who conceived him. So there's real questions around here, around that word, head. It doesn't say authority as such in the text, except for one place the word authority is actually mentioned in this text, which is down in verse 10. And if you look at verse 10 in the NIV, it says this, For this reason, and because of the angels, which is just like, where did that come from? You know, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have what? A sign of authority on her head. All right. The word authority is definitely mentioned here. Guess what is not mentioned? The word sign. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, there is no word for sign. 
in the Greek, which means it's completely not there. Someone added it to the text, but only in the NIV. If you go and look at any other translation, well, most other translations, it doesn't say this. It doesn't say that a woman should have a sign of authority on her head. One translation says a woman should have authority on her head. The other says the woman should have authority over her head. Another one says that she should have a symbol of authority on her head, a sign of authority on her head. They all go different ways because all that it says technically in the Greek is a woman should have authority on her head. What does that mean? that she should have authority on her head. And it's the only time in the whole text that the word authority is actually used. And any time that you go after the word source, you realize that contextually it has to do more with origin, apparently, than it has to do with actually who's in charge. Okay? However, none of that actually determines what we think about this stuff. It just, when you're looking at all the textual issues, and when you get into a place where there's debate, heavy debate around what a passage means, it brings you back to a place where you have to get academic and you have to get technical and you have to look at it because if we're going to mince words about this, you have to look at what's actually said. And I guarantee you the NIV is not going to tell, tell us what is actually said on that level. As a matter of fact, even the NASB and the ESV and other more technical uh, translations are not going to give us the exact translation. You have to get to the Greek, of which I don't speak, you know? And uh, so it takes a lot, of, a lot of study and conversation and uh, if you know a little bit of it, knowing a little bit of it is known enough to be dangerous. And so you have to actually lean into those who have done massive amounts of study and look for help, okay? Uh, one other thing I want to mention before we actually get into this, and, and that's that uh, the whole verse 11 to 12 is the huge uh, kind of discussion around this. It says this, In the Lord, however, you notice that word, however, which means it's juxtaposed to everything else, right? However, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Okay, so we have this. In the two major camps that we're trying to avoid uh, putting ourselves in are these two camps. Uh, one is called egalitarianism, which means that uh, there's no, absolutely no difference when it comes to men and women in the church and that everyone's completely the same. Then there's complementarianism, which still believes that authority rests primarily with men in the church and, that, uh, and that's kind of God-designed. That's the two interpretations of Scripture. Those two camps, when it comes to the interpretation of this text, will look at those two verses. In the Lord, however, and it goes on to explain man and woman are not independent of each other, but they're one in the Lord. One of them views that as parentheses, okay? And so what that means is the whole thing that we're talking about is this is how we're supposed to relate to each other. There's this mode of submission and authority. In the Lord, however, parentheses over here, we're all the same, which is Paul kind of like throwing a bone to the women, you know, and saying, well, in the Lord, however, things are this way, you know? And, and so don't, don't let men get arrogant and think that you're supposed to be crazy with this thing because in the, in the eyes of the Lord, uh, you know, things are the same. The other, actually, the other interpretation is this thing where it's like, that's actually the main point and the rest of it is the parentheses. So all of the other stuff is describing what humans think. And then he says, in the Lord, however... Men and women are the same. 
You see how it can go either way, depending on which camp you're in, so to speak, which way you see it. And the problem is, is that there's no parentheses in the Greek, so you don't know, so you can add it up this way, or you can add it up that way, and either way, it can lead to a different conclusion. All right. When you look at all those textual issues, and you look at the way it can go this way, or it can go that way, you realize that this stuff kind of like Colton at our church, at this other church, when he sees people coming forward and he sees what's going on, it's like, wow, it looks this way to him. But for someone else, it might look this way. For us, looking back 2,000 years with that many textual issues, let's just say it's not crystal clear. Okay? And that's all, all of that is to say what this actually means is not crystal clear. And I don't want to get hung up on the four corners of the earth or the sphere of the earth when I don't have the full perspective. So I'm not going to live and die on this point, okay? Just want to say that. Now, with that said, let's ask, what is it that Paul's actually trying to get at in this passage? Now we get to the important part, okay? And all of that, as far as hermeneutics, interpretation, framing the text, getting technical, is all to get down to this point. We should say, what is Paul actually going after anyway here? I mean, there's all sorts of different interpretations around what the head covering is, by the way. There's, well, there's three different interpretations. One is that there's actually a physical thing that's worn on the head. Paul also says in here that hair is given to, long hair is given to a woman as her covering. And so there's thoughts that this is also about how a woman wears her hair. He's talking about whether their hair is shaved off or short and all this stuff. There's different interpretations around whether Paul was worried about how people were wearing their hair or what they were wearing on their hair. And you can, again, they can slice it either way doesn't really matter for the sake of the of the conversation that we're about to have what is paul getting at what paul's getting at we got to ask this question was paul concerned now ask yourself this question after reading the text was paul concerned about what they were wearing and how they looked or was he concerned about the relationships and how they functioned this is very interesting Was he interested in defining the relationships or was he interested in getting them to look a certain way? Technically speaking, what Paul is actually trying to do is get them to look a certain way. Do you notice that he says, you're supposed to wear the head covering and then he goes into a big explanation as to why they should wear the head covering, right? Why? He goes into this thing about the relationship, about how things, the natural design, even the nature of things says this, this, and this, all of that to make a point and to make a conclusion. And what's the conclusion? That they should appear a certain way. And why does he want them to appear a certain way? Because he knows that it will cause major problems when they don't appear that way. And Paul is not interested in having them have all sorts of problems over things that aren't worth having problems about. Honestly, that's primarily what this text is about. It doesn't mean that Paul's not defining things for men and women. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the role of men and women. He absolutely does. And when you turn to the book of 1 Timothy, it's very clear that he does. And he goes after this topic. But when he's speaking to the people in Corinth, what was happening is, you remember what happened in chapter 7 in marriage? You remember what the issue was? There was these women who believed that they were the eschatological women. And you remember what they did? They thought that they were the women who had, they had experienced the resurrection with Jesus. And you remember what Jesus says in that, in that teaching? That 
in the kingdom of heaven, we'll be like the angels. We won't be married or given in marriage. Right? And that's what Jesus says. And these women believed that they had already experienced the resurrection. And so therefore, marriage was beneath them now. They were above it. They had already experienced resurrection. So they're wanting to bail out of their marriages, not stay connected and intimate in their marriage, and saying that marriage is a bad thing. And Paul has to check it in chapter 7 and say, Listen, you have been redeemed. And yes, that's the way it's going to be in the kingdom of heaven. But that is not completely here yet. You live in the already but not yet time. Where we still live in this world that God designed where gender is still a reality. Sexuality is still a reality. And you have to still live in this present world even though you kind of are thinking up here. That's what he said about marriage. Same thing is going on in this text. These women are saying, hey, doesn't matter. There's no gender anymore in the kingdom of God. God doesn't see male or female. So all the clues in culture about gender are irrelevant. It doesn't matter. If men typically look this way and women typically look this way and there's ways to respect each other that way, none of that matters anymore because we're in the kingdom of God. So apparently there was something with the way women either wore their hair or what they put on their head that revealed in their culture something about the role of men and women and potentially, particularly, about husbands and wives. Okay? Does that make sense? And what he's saying is, if you go and you don't do that now, you're going to cause problems. And while you may say that in the kingdom of heaven there isn't gender, guess what? Take a look around. There's still gender. And you're going to cause issues. Doesn't the very nature of things tell us that there is gender and that there is design around gender in this world. And if you don't respect that, it's going to cause all sorts of issues. And he just got done saying to them how that affects marriage. And he just got done saying how you give up your rights in order to benefit the kingdom of God when it comes to things like meat sacrifice to idols. And he's encouraging these women, saying this in verse 10 and 11. He's saying, in the Lord, however, yes, we are all the same in the Lord, however... Guess what? Not everything here is in that spot yet. We're still in this space where there's redemption working itself out. And so we have to learn to live in the real world. And you have to play by the rules that of, of where we're at right now if we're actually going to love each other according to the kingdom of God. So don't go and make a big mess of things. Does that make sense? You understand? And so the culture of what was going on is Paul was trying to get them to stay according to what the culture was asking them to do, which he's commanding them to live by these cultural norms and not break the norms and cause all sorts of issues because it's really important that they live according to that. And he's actually defining that God created the gender different with intention. Okay? Now, what does that mean for us? Okay? I want to just stop for a second and and ask, what does that mean for us? What do we do with that? The easiest thing, the reason there's been all the controversy around this text is because people have been dealing with the role of men and women in the church. Believe me, that's no less of an issue. However, this text, that's not primarily what it is about. That argument and that struggle belongs in 1 Timothy. It doesn't belong in 1 Corinthians because that's not what Paul's primarily getting at. He does allude to it, so we have to deal with it. 
We have to deal with it because he alludes to it, but it's not the primary intention of the text. The primary intention of the text is this. How we appear in church and in public is really important. And it's not important because we want to reveal about ourselves who we are or how pretty we are or how fashionable we are or how tough we are or how free we are or how uh, artistic we are or whatever it is. That's not the primary concern when it comes to dress, even in the same way that marriage, the primary concern of marriage isn't about whether I'm happy, it's about whether the kingdom of God is being fulfilled. In the same way, when it comes to fashion, when it comes to apparel, the primary concern is how it's affecting the kingdom of God. And Paul, all throughout his letter, is trying to get them from the very first page of 1 Corinthians all the way to the end, church in the real world, is he's trying to get them to figure out how to love one another as they depend on God. And he's asking these women in this place, still play by the cultural rules, still dress appropriately, please do not mess this up, which is hilarious because Paul is all about freedom. And most of the time he says, I don't want you to get pinned into this tradition or into this mess. He goes and tells the Gentiles all the time, don't live according to the old Jewish law. Don't go and get circumcised. You don't need to do that anymore. And then he takes Timothy, his disciple, and he goes and has him circumcised. Why? Because he's going to be dealing with the Jews. And he doesn't want to cause problems. And he's saying the same thing to Corinth. Play by the rules. Yes, in the Lord and in redemption and in kingdom of heaven, there won't be gender and we'll all be the same. And there is now therefore neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. I almost said Jew nor geek. That was funny. (laughs) Jew, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. You know, and he says that and that's great. And in the kingdom of heaven, that's the way it is. But guess what? You know? we got to figure out how to love each other right now and not pretend that we're already sitting in heaven where none of this is, is reality. This is church in the real world, you know, in the present world, in the present world, okay? And so that's what, what does that say to us? What it says is, is that when I get up in the morning and I get dressed, and when I come to church, and when I'm interacting with my brothers and sisters, what I wear is not irrelevant. What I wear is important. And according to Paul, Gender distinctions are also important. And how we dress reveals things about gender. And we need to be careful about that. Okay? Because how we dress can bring honor or dishonor to our spouse. It can bring honor or dishonor to God. It can cause problems or it can make problems go away. And I need to actually be intentional and thoughtful about the way I appear and the way I dress. And I need to think about what it communicates. And I need to understand that what comes off of me, what I put out there, actually affects the kingdom of God. You see how if we get caught up, in a current theological discussion, we can lose the power of what the text is actually trying to say to us. Paul is trying to get them to love each other with how they dress. And that part of the text goes completely missing because we get hung up on this side thing that he said as, as, as just a discussion about why they should dress the way they're supposed to dress. Now, okay, that's the, that's the bottom line of this text. With that said, I'm going to say this. I'm going to break my rule that I always say, that, I, that I've been saying all through the, the book of Corinthians, which is that we stay in the text and we don't get hung up on these theological issues and we don't get on rabbit trails. 
but before we end today, I actually have to deal with this issue of gender, okay? And this is why. It's because Paul does actually allude to it, and even though it's not the main point of the text, he does speak to it. What's more is, is we're in the process of discerning more elders at Parker Ford Church. And part of the reason we're studying so much about gender is not only because I'm preaching this text, but because as we go to invite people to be elders in the church, you got to think about it. You got to think about it. What does the text actually say? And how does it speak to the idea of, of female and male leadership in church and in home and in family, all those places? And so I'm not going to go into a huge theological discussion around this. I can't. I would urge you, if you want the paper uh, that has been written that the elders kind of put out there, we can, we can get that to you. I'd, we'd much rather have a discussion with you even than just reading a paper because this is worthy of a discussion. But what I'm going to do with the remainder of our time is I want to tell you about the tensions, the theological tensions that exist in understanding the idea of gender in the church. Okay, and the role of gender in the church and the different things that you have to wrestle with. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, about apparel. It's primarily what it's about. Don't let go of that, please, when we walk out of here today. Remember that's important, okay? But when it comes to this issue, there are tensions. Those tensions exist within our theology, and the reason is because there are parts of God that coexist inside of him that are hard for us to, to reconcile just like the Trinity is hard for us to reconcile. We can't get our heads completely wrapped around it. It's hard for us to get our heads completely wrapped around what's going on inside of God's head and in God's heart. God is both, both principled and relational. God cares about principles, and he also cares about people, both. He cares about both those things. You know, I, I, my uh, son Evan said something to Jen at one point. It was great. He was like, if two kings were about to go to war, why wouldn't they just sit down together and read the Ten Commandments and realize that it says thou shalt not kill, and then they'd, be, they'd have peace, you know? Which, that's a beautifully simplistic thought, right? Except there's problems. Is that while the principle clearly says thou shalt not kill, God breaks his principle at times if it doesn't really break it, but it looks like it doesn't. I mean, God kills people, doesn't he? Clearly in the text, God kills people. What's more is God commanded people to kill other people. After the Ten Commandments were written, he did that. What's more is, is he killed people for not killing people that he said they should kill. And yet the commandment says thou shalt not kill. It's a little more complicated, isn't it? The principle's clear, and yet how that principle works itself out in relational contexts it, it morphs and it changes, and we got to figure it out. And, there, and there, are, there are deep things that God holds dear, but in each situation, they kind of work themselves out differently, and we got to wrestle with that. It's not as simple and clean and black and white as we'd always like it to be. Men and women, without a doubt, in the eyes of God, as people, are completely and totally, unequivocally equal. Equal, you know? No question about it. The text is extremely clear that in the eyes of God, men and women are equal as people. But God also has this other thing, this principle that he deals with, right? And the principle is this thread that runs all through the scripture and it starts way before the fall of man. And it's that men and women are different. They're designed different. I was at a party uh, and met this guy from our neighborhood, uh, uh, 
who is a sports therapist, and uh, he's a trainer, a physical trainer, and his job, he does injury protection of high-end athletes, Olympians and Division I athletes and things like that, and his job is to prevent injury. And he was telling me that more than any other thing, what he deals with is women in Division, Division I athletes who are women who constantly are blowing their ACL. And I'm like, that's weird. Why is that what you deal with all the time? He's like, women, their bodies blow ACLs when they are in that hard of competitive sports. And I'm like, more than men? He's like, way more than men, like 10 to 1. I'm like, really? I'm like, why is that? He's like, because they're just not made for that, man. You know? And I, I, it was funny because he said, told me he was an agnostic. And, you know, and I was like, you just said made. And then he said designed. He said design. And I was like, you said design. That's not the point. Anyway, um, he, when he said that, he was acknowledging something. That our bodies are actually different and therefore function different and there's different causes. That's God's problem, isn't it? Isn't he the one who created us different? That was a design issue. Should men and women be treated differently? Should they be treated differently? Oh, well, if they shouldn't be treated differently, then all you guys are way overdue for your mammogram. And all you men, women are completely, you know, overdue for your prostate exam. And they're, you know, they're, we are absolutely treated differently. That's why some of you take men's health vitamins and some take women's health vitamins because you're different genders and your bodies need to be treated differently. And you might say, well, yeah, our bodies need to be treated differently, but that's it. Oh, really? So I raise a boy the same way I raise a girl? No? You know, is it only culture that tells a girl what kind of movie she should like and a boy what kind of movie he should like? It's not only culture that does that. Granted, men, d- moms and dads do have a hand in saying, hey, you know, put down the baby doll or, you know, like whatever it is, you know, and that type of thing. But there's more than just culture that shapes our gender. There's design and that's a principle. And that principle is that from the very beginning, we were created differently and we were created and designed for different purposes and we have to be okay with the fact that God created us differently and created us to function differently and we have to be okay with the fact that that doesn't mean that we're unequal it means that we're different and God created us for different purposes designed us for different functions and if I'm a man and I want to boo-hoo over the fact that I can't birth a kid hello that'd be ridiculous you know but I, I it's it's like it is what it is it is what it is the way that a man's brain functions and a woman's brain functions, it's different. That's not just a joke. That's not just books and psychology. That's full on. The brain's shaped different. It's connected different. It works differently. And that's not just by accident. That's not just about the fall of man. That's about the design of God. And in our society, we have gotten to a place where we want to blur the distinction so much because we're afraid that if there's something different, that that means that we're not equal. And that's ridiculous because what we're going to do is ask men and women to compete on fields with each other where they're not the same and one is going to naturally fail and the other is going to naturally win and then the one's going to feel bad because they can't keep up. What if all of a sudden at the Olympics we put all of them in the same, you know, all the men and women's sports are the same. Guess who's going to win, you know? That's not cool. They're designed differently. Guess if we talk about emotional health and understanding having intuition in relationships and, and we're going to put everyone together and, and see who's better at functioning that way. Guess who's going to function better, you know? And guess who's going to come up short? 
We're designed differently. And we have to come to terms with the fact that that was God's fault because it was a principle. It was intentional. That's the way he wanted it. And that is a tension that we have to deal with. And in any given situation, what God's principle is versus how the relationship works itself out, it morphs and changes, which leads us to a second part. Okay, God's principles, there's another tension in God's principles. Some of his principles are design principles. Some of his principles are moral principles. And there's a difference between design and morality. Okay? Morality has to do with how God created us to function in relationships morally. It has to do with whether we love God first and we love each other in the same way. You know? Appropriately. And, and all of the Ten Commandments are moral principles that fit into two relationships. The greatest two commandments. How much we love God and how much we love each other. That's morality. But there is also principles of design, which have to do with things like gravity, okay? And you can try to fight gravity, and, it won't, and it's not immoral to fight gravity, but it is stupid, okay? And there's a big difference when it comes to fighting God's design principles, and dealing with God's design principles, and dealing with the morality, moral principles. There's a big difference there, okay? And God, without a doubt, changes up design things in order to continue to achieve moral things. God's design was that Moses would speak to Pharaoh about the people of Israel. When Moses bailed on it, God still loved Israel, and he still wanted a relationship with them. And he didn't say, I'm not moving forward in my relationship with Israel until Moses gets in line. He says, all right, get out of the way. I'm bringing Aaron over, and we're doing plan B in order to get done what I want to do. And he changes his design in order to keep the moral in place. Okay, this is what God does. Jen and I are painting at home right now. And we used to have one of those uh, paint can openers, you know, and... Now we can't find it. So what are we going to use? A screwdriver. Is that what a screwdriver is made for? Well, that's immoral then. That I, you know, that's wrong. You know? And this is how we deal all the time with things that God designed to be a certain way. But if it's not functioning right, we get all hung up on how, design, how God designed it to be when he never called it morality. He called it design. Okay? And he said, this is the way it functions best. This is ideal. This is the way it's supposed to work. And that paint can opener rips it open easier than prying around with the, the stinking, you know, uh, the screwdriver. And yet, I don't have one of those other things, so I'm going to use this. And when society starts to fall apart because of moral issues, sometimes you have to adapt on a design level in order to handle the moral failure. And that's because we understand that the morality of what God wants from us is more important than just the intentional design that he beautifully put in place for us, okay? And as much as possible, we try to go with the design. But when you have to design, choose between design and morality, you pick morality, okay? You don't get hung up on design. God does this himself. He changes the game, which leads to the last tension. And the last tension is between authority and community. God created us as people to function in authority and he has designs for how that authority works. Design principles for how that authority works. But then there is also community, which has to do with how we truly love one another. Okay? And we are called to live in a state of love. Love for God first, love for one another. Community without authority is a total mess. And it doesn't work. And that's why God designed authority 
in a society. Authority without community is devastating. It's horrible. It's genocide. It's brutal. You know? There's nothing good about it. And there's this tension there about God's design for authority and God's call to us for community. And how we sort that out has everything to do with the other two tensions that we were working through. Our job in society, our job in this world, is to reveal the heart and the mind of God when it comes to community and authority. In our world, when women supposedly have equal rights, we have done an absolutely wonderful job of taking away the gains of giving women rights by objectifying women through Hollywood in ways that are absolutely ridiculous. And on one level, we treat, them, treat women as if you're equals women. And on another level, we treat women as if they're objects. And in a society where we elevate them more and more as having equal rights, and then we denigrate them more and more by objectifying them, we go one way and the other way at the same time. And what does it look like to be authority in our society? What does it look like, men, to be true men in our society? Because you understand, it's not just the role of women that's called into question in this text or in society. The role of men is brought into question because clearly a role of man, the guy who is emotionally a little detached where the right and left brain aren't connected, who was designed for a function, who is supposed to be able to take the principle and stand on it at all costs, no matter how much it hurts. We stand on the principle and we stand for what is right, no matter what. In that society, what has happened to men? We've defined it by watching football and drinking beer, and we've been emasculated as men who stand up in protection of God's principles in our society. And we objectify women. And what happens? Where is the strength in men? We were designed to stand on principle. We were designed by God to do this. That's what we were called to do. And it's no wonder that the discussion around equality and authority and all of that is a tough one for women to handle because it's not just about them being treated inappropriately. It's about us men also not living in the fullness of what we're called to. Do you remember what Paul says to Timothy in that letter? He says, I wish that men everywhere would lift up holy hands in prayer. I don't know when you got to the last church you were at where you thought that the main prayer warriors in the church were the men. Let me tell you what, God designed men to be the prayer warriors in a church. Thank goodness that the women have held us up while we've been failing. I just want to say that I don't think that it's a problem that women have been trying to help out on the prayer side when men in our society don't think it's very masculine. They're holding up the morality in order to, to sustain us while the principle's missing. You understand what I'm saying? A single mom, when she doesn't have a dad with her, she's got to start doing some dad stuff, you know? And she's just got to take care of it because it needs to get done. When it comes to men and women in the church, 
We are designed to function certain ways. We are gifted, created to function certain ways. And God says, this is how I made it. And if you guys want to love each other well, and if you want to go forward with the kingdom of God, learn how that works so you know how to respect and honor and care and cherish one another. And so that you can do what's best for the kingdom of God. However, however, when the thing's coming apart at the seams, you do what you got to do to get done what needs to get done for the kingdom of God. And we certainly don't look at a woman who's doing something that typically across the pages of Scripture was a man's job. We're not going to turn our nose down and say, what are you doing? That's a man's job. Are you kidding me? Why is, why is she having to do it anyway? You know? Across the pages of Scripture as the elders, it's been really clear. You know, God has a natural design. A natural design is that he gifted men in a certain way to be leaders in general, stereotypically, to lead. And that's why you put a heavy burden on them to do it. However, there are exceptions to that rule across the pages of Scripture, without a doubt. Deborah, great judge, man. She got it done when no one else would, you know? Phoebe, great deacon. She did a wonderful job, as far as we know. Junia, an apostle, you know? And there are women in Scripture who step into these roles. When you do the statistics and the ratio... I mean, the ratio is like you got a couple women stepping into these roles, and the overarching principle is that God designed men to function in this way. I just saw that in the news this week that there's the first female uh, high school quarterback. Whoo! Wow. Go, girl. Wow, that's scary. You know, that's probably not how she was designed, you know, to be the warrior, but every now and then you get a Joan of Arc coming through, you know, <laughs> or whatever. And all we're saying is, is that it's obvious how God designed us, it's obvious how those things were wired. But the main point isn't to always force things to go according to the natural design. The main point is to be about the main point, which is living in the morality of the kingdom of God. Love. And we function best the way we're designed. But society is not ideal. This is church in the real world. Get it? Let's pray.